0: Hey there, Underground Session podcast listeners. My name is Bob Urbig. I'm your host here. We're so glad that you're joining us for Season 3, Episode 2 of the Underground Sessions podcast. Today, I interview Paul Gould, who was one of our speakers at the Contend Conference this last January. We're going to talk a little bit about cultural apologetics, answer your questions that we didn't get to at the conference, and finish up the whole podcast by talking about some deep, deep issues of artificial intelligence. Join us and uh, enjoy this podcast. So glad you're joining us today. Uh, We are doing an interview with Paul Gould, who is the... Uh, director of the MA in Philosophy of Religion program down at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He's also an associate professor of philosophy, and he's the author of the books Cultural Apologetics and The Good and True Story. Although, if you are a friend to the podcast and to the Underground Sessions, you probably know he was one of our key speakers here at the Contend Conference back in January. And it's taken us a while to get him back on, uh, because on our end, we were putting together our studio that we've been using. But that's finally done. We, We have an appointment with Paul today, and he's going to be answering some of your questions from that, the content conference that we didn't get to, as well as diving into a little bit of the AI topic that we've been talking about recently. So, uh, so Paul, we're so glad you're here. Uh, just remind us, again, who you are, again, what you do, how you got to where you are, anything that I left out in that introduction, and, uh, and also where you live, because I know it's a little warmer down there mm-hmm. than it is right here.
1: Yes. Yeah, hey Bob, great to be great to see you, great to be with you here uh for this time. Uh yeah, so my name is Paul Gould again. I guess, you know, what was left out of there, I'm married to my wife. That's always good. Oh, sorry. Well, that's a good thing for you to mention. That's right. Yeah, like I'm a human person, um, and we and we've been married 28 years, I think, and we've got four uh, grown or growing kids. We've got three in college, one in grad school, two two in undergrads uh, college, and then one that's still at home. Joshua, our youngest, who's a a junior in high school. And apart from that, I you know I'm really grateful to be teaching philosophy at Palm Beach Atlantic University, and I love thinking about. Um, yeah, I love thinking about the nature of the world and, and, and the nature of God and all things in relation to God. So it's a real privilege uh, to be able to do what I do. And I also love uh, just thinking deeply about how does the gospel get a fair hearing and culture? And so many of the books and the things that I do work on sort of around that question of um, how do we help show others? you know, the brilliance and beauty of Jesus or just mm. the reasonableness of the gospel and and just and yeah. the desirability of the gospel. So yeah, those are the things that keep me up at night. And uh, yeah, excited
0: to have our conversation here That's today. That's good. Well, great. Well, two things just made me think about that. Number one, you don't look old enough to be married 28 years, so uh, yeah. you're aging well. And then uh, uh, secondly, um, secondly, I was thinking, you know, in relation with um, philosophy, and I remember you got up at the conference, and, and you had to kind of give some disclaimers because people might have uh, stereotypes of philosophers. Maybe tell us a little bit about why Christians should care about philosophy, and then by extensions, extension, apologetics, which is probably a bit of a subset of philosophy.
1: Yeah, good. So, I mean, basically, if, if you think of philosophy, a lot of times... You know, as professors, we love to, in our freshman seminars, point out that the, the word philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia, philo or philene, to love, sophia, wisdom. So, we like to point out how philosophy is the love of wisdom, and of course, that is part of it. Um, Sounds you know, like a book read, by Paul Copin. That's right. Yeah. There, <laughs> there are wisdom. a lot of philosophy books yes. with something about wisdom in the title. You know, and even as one, many have pointed out, like in the Republic, Plato was actually more scandalous. Like the philosopher is wisdom's lover, right? That we're moved by this this passion for wisdom. And, and we'll I love that. that you are a lover. I'm a lo- <laughs> lover of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way I think of it, though, is. Okay, so philosophy, if you want like, a really quick definition of it, for me, philosophy is just the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for the flourishing mm-hmm. of all. So the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for the flourishing of all. And if you take that definition and then you connect it to like one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament, Colossians 2.3, where we read of Christ mm-hmm. – where it says, Paul says, in him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so if philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, and in Christ we find, you know, these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, what we find is there's this very tight connection between our faith and philosophy, uh, conceived as this pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and for the flourishing of all. And you're right, apologetics, in in one sense, could be a subset of philosophy, right? Because at the root, that word apologia in the Greek is just To give a defense, and of course, there's many apologists for many positions. Right? You have apologists for atheism. Think of Mm -hmm, like the new atheists of the early 2000s. They were apologists for atheism. On the flip side of that, you have apologists for Christianity. People who are defending or commending uh, the truth. And I would just want to add the goodness and beauty of the gospel. Mm And so, Mm -hmm. I think it's super important. As men and women who are followers of Christ, you know, we're called primarily to love God. Well, first to love God with all of our being, and that being includes Mm -hmm, our mind. mm -hmm. And so it's just part of what it means to love God, to uh, pursue wisdom and knowledge for the flourishing of all. That would be like the second commandment, love our neighbor as ourselves. And so there's a really tight connection between the things that we do in philosophy and, and the kind of life that God calls us to as followers of Christ. So yeah, uh, that's how I view these yeah, things. Yeah, that's
0: really good. And I think um, uh, the, the, the theme that you're bringing out there about the reasonableness and the beauty of the gospel and how, it, how uh, people are drawn to it, you do, just, you do a wonderful job of encapsulating that in your cultural apologetics book. I, I really benefited from that um, uh, the first time I read it a few years ago, and I've continued to revisit those themes. Um, it did make me think, uh, in terms of the way you were answering, um, just a a little bit about, could you speak to what the, what do you think are the current pressing issues in the area of Christian philosophy and apologetics and, uh, maybe I'll add, I, I was having a conversation over lunch even today, uh, just generally about education, um, in, in terms of, it seems really, really recently it's been popular to focus in on the, uh, what's been called like the STEM or the, or the, or the STEAM, uh, curriculum that you're doing science, technology, education, math, and a lot of those things leave out, um, leave out some of these philosophical humanity, uh, uh, areas, mm-hmm. um, and, and the conversation over lunch was around that versus uh, more of a classical approach to education, um, which I, th- I think teaches kids more about logic and rhetoric and reason. And uh, at least in my mind, it seems like we've we focused a lot on um, uh, you know, the STEM stuff at the expense of some of the logic and, and the philosophy, the big questions of life that, that don't seem as uh, pertinent uh, right now. Um, so I might have taken you off in a right hand direction with that. I was just thinking about it, but I, I did want to ask about what do you think are some of the pressing areas as it relates to you know philosophy today. Did that take you yeah, in two no, different I directions mean, or was it they well, somehow connected? Uh, <laughs> I was trying no, to. No, no, we
1: can we can kind of circle them back here. So in, in regards to your rabbit trail though, that is really important about like the discussion overstatement <laughs> I mean, and, and what is education. As somebody yeah. who does
0: pedagogical studies for a living. Totally. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and and, you know because you're right. Like, there's this prior question in education, like, what is the purpose of education? Um, And and this is a question that's been uh, percolating uh, within the university for years, right? You know, what is the purpose of a university? And traditionally, the purpose of the university was to develop fully formed or flourishing humans, right? Good, full human people, and the liberal arts were essential to that. You know, even some people call it the liberating arts because as I would put it, we we're, were created to be nourished on the good, the true, and the beautiful, not just the STEM stuff, but the whole the whole thing, right? Um, and so there is a big debate about that. Sometimes, and we're going to probably talk about this because we'll talk about AI, but in our mechanistic kind of conception of the world, that's part of the focus on the STEM stuff is we want to reduce everything to its microparts and its quantities and qualities and, and, and formula. Well, it's, it's a and little more utilitarian, me- right? Like this is this, it's is, utilitarian. this is practical. Yeah, the it's other stuff is superfluous, you know? That's right. Yeah, and and so we see the the non-cognitive benefit to the STEM disciplines, right? Like the other stuff, there are benefits, but there's this debate about whether, you know, knowledge itself is intrinsically valuable. So there's a huge debate there, uh, and and I think that it's – I'm glad that you're having that discussion. Um, Okay, in terms of like current issues, issues, let me answer that in two ways. Yeah, pressing issues. Um, I've been really thinking a lot about – I just read this summer uh, Gary Moon's uh, biography of Dallas Willard, Becoming Mm, Dallas Willard. mm. And in there, there's a section at the end um, where Dallas Willard, as he's you know getting close to his death, he uh, invited J.P. Moreland, who was one of his close friends and mentors, over, and he basically. Um, bequeath to Moreland these four philosophical doctrines that he wanted that were kind of like the 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 passion, the things that Dallas Willard was all about. And he encouraged JP and those like me who have studied under JP and in, in that sense are, are part mm-hmm, of his mm-hmm. heritage too, to really champion. And these four things I've been thinking a lot about. So let me just list them to you because I think these are at the forefront of what we need to be thinking about in apologetics and just theology and, and philosophy in general. And and so for Willard it was the defense of something called metaphysical realism which is just this view that we live in this thick world right uh, uh, uh this thick reality that's that's uh full of not just physical reality but deep spiritual realities and there's more we could say about that but metaphysical realism number 2 this thing that Dallas Willard was really um in Intrigued by and studied and spent his whole life defending something called epistemic realism, but it's just the view that we can stand, we can be directly acquainted with the thing itself, right? We can even be directly acquainted with the essence of the thing itself. And so, there's metaphysical realism, epistemic realism. Third, was this defense of the reality and the nature of human persons, and this is again a major theme in Dallas Willard's work. And and that's something that's so critical today in apologetics, right? What does it mean to be a human person? This this is part of the discussion that we'll have. Have over AI. Um, and these, of course, get at questions about sexuality and gender mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm, whether our, our mm-hmm. natures are malleable such that we can you know, become post-human or transhuman and all those kinds of things. And then the fourth piece for Willard was the reality and the testability of spiritual formation, right? That that we can we can actually do it and we can actually be apprentices in the way of Christ. Um, and of course, Willard wrote, you know, wonderfully on the spiritual disciplines in life. Um, and I think that. Those four things do animate me, as they animated Willard and JP, and so many that have studied in that sort of stream. And I think that for many reasons, those are four areas that we need to engage that are kind of the battlefront um, in all these other areas yeah. that you see in culture. The only other two well, that I would tied add, in, right, then, right. they're they're all, they're all tied together. Yeah, they're tied yeah. in. That's right. They're tied in very tightly. And then I would just add: you, you kind of you you kind of bifurcated the question in philosophy and apologetics. I would w- want to also add. Especially in the area of sort of general apologetics, there is a lack of biblical literacy. You know that 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 I think we need to continue to press into our theology and our knowledge of Scripture uh, among Christians. Not you know first and foremost, so that we can communicate to a biblically illiterate culture. And then secondly, I want to just say there's a crisis of existential fit. Um, And what I mean by that, or kind of existential unity, um, largely as Christians, we don't live consistent with the dictates of our faith, and it's becoming more and more of a gap that we're just fragmented people or we're just as fragmented as our non-believing neighbors. And that that, in terms of our witnessing ability and power uh, makes the faith very unattractive to many. And so, those would be two areas mm-hmm. that I'm deeply concerned with, uh, yeah. our, our behavior, our kind of lack of wholeness, our lack of finding and being nourished in the good, the true, and the beautiful, that is found in yeah. Christ. Things like that.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's very good. And and one you one of your talents is just to be able to summarize big big topics very succinctly. I mean, that was pretty impressive what you just did. For for my benefit, I always get these two mixed up: metaphysics, epistemology. Metaphysics <laughs> is the understanding of the nature of the universe, and then epistemology is the understanding of how we know what we know, and knowledge. Did I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's good. That, yeah. it's meta- metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics are the three legs of philosophy that's right three main okay. branches oh i got i got it right yes good job <laughs> i always yep. i always forget i always mix those up and then ontology i i, I sometimes yeah. i mix them up in my mind all right. Well, do you mind if we move on to some of the questions from the the Contend conference that we didn't get to? I yeah. had um, I had a, I had a yeah, slew of it. things that we didn't quite we we ran out of time that Saturday night, and people were people were itching for Paul Gould to answer uh, them. So um, so I'll just do I'll just ahead. go through them that we have here. These were some pretty good questions. So the first one was um, for Paul: What's the relationship between cultural apologetics? And culture wars. Do Christians focus too much on fighting the culture rather than building bridges? Can you speak to that? And I think you started to get at, at, at that in your your last answer, but maybe you could say a little bit more about it right now. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and that's that's a huge question
1: too. Um, so to simplify that, let me try to let me try to distinguish distinguish culture apologetics, the thing that I'm interested in and passionate about. From culture wars, in terms of postures, two two fundamentally different postures. So, uh, and, and I'm going to borrow from Andy Crouch, who wrote this book called Culture Making, and he talks mm-hmm. about these four postures that Christians have typically right. taken toward culture. And those postures, I'll just list them, are um, that we either condemn culture, like this is our learned stance toward culture, we're just always condemning it, or we're critiquing it, constantly just critiquing it, or we're just copying it mindlessly, we're cons- copying everything that they do and putting a Christian veneer on it, or we're consuming it, and again, mindlessly mm. consuming it. And, and mm. I think that the culture war posture is is and embodies those four postures in a kind of us-them mentality and a kind of, word distinct from culture mentality. But when we think a little bit about what culture is, culture is just what we make of the world. And Christians mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. part of culture because we make culture and we're shaped by the culture that we make. And so our posture shouldn't be one of condemning, critiquing, um, copying and consuming. Now those are things we should gesture at. So there's the distinction that Andy Crutch makes. We can gesture at these things at times, but it shouldn't be like our learned stance. Our learned stance and the, the kind of posturing that I, I envision with this idea of cultural apologetics is that we are we are creators and cultivators. This is Andy Crouch's language. Our posture is one of creating the good, the true, and the beautiful and cultivating what we already see within culture and in others' lives that is good and true and beautiful. So we're artists and gardeners. And then at times we consume, at times we copy, at times we critique, and at times we rightly condemn. But that's not like our learned stance. And that's maybe one quick way to get at the difference between culture wars, which I don't think are always beneficial. Mm -hmm. And what I am trying to commend to others is that we help others see the goodness, truth, and beauty of the gospel uh, through this kind of model of cultural
0: apologetics. Good. Maybe a quick follow-up question. This isn't on the list, but it just popped in my mind and you can choose to answer it or not answer it. Uh, Can culture... Is culture just always... Just culture, or can culture be categorized as good or bad, and is there a sliding scale in there? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I that didn't give there you that question. Normative. So if that's not, <laughs> if that's, no, no, if that's, that's great. Too much.
1: No, I love it. I, I mean, I think that there are elements of culture. Mm-hmm. That um, so if culture is just what we make of the world, and this is actually was Ken Myers who did Mar- Mars Hill Audio for years, and then Andy Crouch picked up on that. Okay. So what we make of the world, of course, some of that is going to be good, and and it's going to need to be nourished and 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 tended to. But of course, there's many things that we make of the world that are are not just neutral, but morally bad, mm, right? Okay. And so yeah, it's going to be mixed. It's going to be completely mixed. And we'll come to this, I'm sure, in the in the the discussion. What that requires of us. As Christians, is wisdom that we need to be men and women uh, who are who are growing in the virtues, such that we can discern the good, the true, and the beautiful, and live according to the grain of the world. Uh, you know, not just according to what
0: culture, you know, society yes. says is good or not, but yes. actually connecting to reality as it is. That's good, wonderful. All right, second question um, that came in from the conference: uh, What do the Stoic philosophers believe life is? Did they know Jesus? Who did they think he was, and was there a consensus?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: that, that's um, an interesting kind of. A, how did we get to stoicism? From I don't. There? Well, um, I don't. These these were just general yeah. questions from the conference. So whatever you said, I think uh, you, I think I remember in your one talk you kind of did a kind of quick history of philosophy, oh, and that may still. have been uh, somebody. Oh, yeah, 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 Somebody good, tying okay. into that. So what is? <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. So I think I can answer it in general terms,
1: but uh, I. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it in general terms. Um, so, what is Stoic philosophy? Well, it was a philosophy that was, it, it's an ancient Greek philosophy that was founded like the third century BC by a guy named Zeno, um, Zeno of Citium, I think it's called. But um, anyway, it's basically a philosophy of life that, we, that seeks eudaimonia, that's the Greek word for happiness. So, we flourish by living a virtuous life. So, Stoics are known for pursuing virtue. And that's why they're also known for like denying the pleasures of the life, right? Because they want to live, be a certain kind of person that's congruous with reality, congruous with reason and with nature. So, did they believe in God? No, not really. But they kind of had a concept of deity or at least they didn't believe in god the way that like a theist would believe in god they had a concept of deity and it was usually equated with nature or it was imminent within nature sometimes it would be personified as zeus or or the greek pantheon sometimes it would be just reason capital r reason that pervades everything what is its relationship with christ and with christianity well there's actually really interesting connections there um one fact that maybe your listeners will find interesting is that um one of the leading stoic philosophers Seneca was born on the exact same was born the same year as Jesus Christ so AD 4, uh, 4 okay. BC I'm sorry 4 BC which is really interesting so you have an important stoic philosopher that lives like this parallel life uh, to, to Christ, Christ. Yeah. and um there's many interesting parallels there and what you see in the gospels and what you see in acts is that Jesus and Paul are always um they're they're teaching in relation to not just the Jews but to the Hellenized world which includes stoic philosophy. So like you could there's a book that we read in a class uh, last semester called Jesus the Philosopher and it was basically making this argument that Jesus was in in the line of like the stoic philosophers. Interesting claim, right? I think that there's something to that that he, that he is like the ancient stoic philosophers. I mean he's more than that, but he's at least like in that sort of way. Now, as the tradition develops, um, as Christianity develops, there began to be tension with that. So, Nero and uh, others were uh, Stoic philosophers that um, basically were persecuting of Christians. Then you get to the Roman Empire and and Marcus Aurelius, for example, again, very hostile toward um, Christianity. And really, if you wanted to kind of put the bookmarks on Stoicism, you know, founded about 300 years before Christ, and then it kind of fades out a little bit about 300, 400 years after Christ, right about the time that Christianity becomes a state religion. So, it was in conversation. With Christianity, and eventually it was kind of superseded. The last thing I'll say on this, though, is there's been a huge comeback in Stoic philosophy today. Uh, there's books that are being like Princeton University Press is releasing this whole series on how to live, you know, well, and it's all about Stoic philosophy. There's a there's an annual conference of contemporary modern day Stoics today on this, and so it's not like it's gone away. Um, But that was a kind
0: of fun question. That's that's really interesting that that, that's coming out. So that's more in in academic circles or are we seeing it in popular culture too, like in arts and stuff? Both. So what would be an example of things in the arts? Oh, I said, what would would be an example of uh, where we would have seen it like in arts and media? Oh,
1: um, I mean, you so what what I'm thinking about is like there's this big movement to how do we live life well you know and, okay. and so there's kind of this return to virtue in, in in some circles and so maybe you see that i don't i'd have to think about where you see that coming up in in film and movie but i bet you the minute we get off this i'll think of like five things okay um, we'll put it in the show notes you know, later it, on <laughs> yeah yeah we'll put it in the show notes so i'm sure it's popping up in hollywood and, and stuff like that but in the academy it's definitely making a comeback um, and then, like, in the popular culture, in terms of, like, people are turning to it as a philosophy of life. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Very cool. All right. Next question, um, uh, maybe more a practical focus one. Somebody asked, can you share some examples of how Christians have successfully taken um, your philosophy—I think they're talking about your cultural apologetics philosophy—out of the classroom and into conversations with non-believers in uh, non-believers of Jesus and the gospel— Hmm. So, how, how yeah, that's ha, hard because, ha, You have any yeah. stories of cultural apologetics in action? I think is what they're getting at.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hard. I have lots of anecdotes. I'm trying to think. I mean, just people. So, uh, just people sharing. Um, part of what I'm trying to do in cultural apologetics
0: is. is well, help I think us. they're looking for anecdotes, though. So, if you have anecdotes, I would, oh. I would maybe share that. I mean,
1: people people creating um, art, people creating music. That incorporates goodness, truth, and beauty, um, pointing toward the gospel, awakening the longing um so I've, I've I've seen that i've I've got a friend who teaches at a school in uh, california he uh is, he's actually teaches architect but he's a fan of the book, and so he's had his students develop architectural projects that embody some of the principles of um, you know how do we how do we even pay attention to our lived spaces such that we pr- prepare people to um view the world as sacred. So there's like fun stuff there with students. Um, one, int- you know, even just the rise of like, think of the Gospel Coalition and uh, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, right? Just the, the whole idea mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there's this um, movement of pastors and and mostly pastors that are involved in that that are championing this. Um, anecdotally, I don't want to name names, but other pastors that are fairly well known that have kind of grabbed these concepts and reshaped uh, how they engage culture. Um, for me, I and I, I might have mentioned this at the conference. For me, um, it's shaped the way that I – it's changed the way that I kind of think about apologetics in terms mm-hmm. of like when I go out and speak on philosophy. You know, people ask me to come and speak on does God exist or why does God allow evil or things like that. And I used to for years just do like the typical philosophical – there's kind of like a dialectic that you can do. That That's fairly you know routine, fairly uh, giving the evidence, showing the arguments. But I've kind of changed because of thinking about cultural apologetics, thinking about how to engage both the heart and the mind. I've done two things specifically, and every time I give those talks, I still do all the same philosophy, sa- the same reasoning, but I always begin with, can you just for 20 minutes consider the possibility that Jesus is better than you think? right just for 20 minutes consider the possibility that jesus would like satisfy the deep longings of the heart and in doing that you're i'm encouraging a posture of openness to the possibility that god actually exists and is good and then at the end i always come back to that and and i i ask this other question and this is a question that tim keller i think taught us well to ask is you know of all the competing stories out there is there a story that understands you right and to me that's that's reframing The discussion, and I've seen many people kind of reframe their discussions in these ways, trying to peel the head and heart. And that's the beauty of cultural apologetics, it's just trying to um, respect people as people. And, and treat them as not just minds, but minds with hearts and, and emotions and passions and things like that. Well, that's So great. yeah, I guess I didn't give you many anecdotes, but there you go. No,
0: no, I, I think you answered it. And actually tell me, so there's, there's two other questions in this middle section from the conference, or I would say themes of questions. Mm-hmm. The next one sort of gets at what you just did, so you can tell me if you feel like you already answered it. Uh, the person asked, would you share practical ways we can be students of culture how can we engage with culture without being ensnared by it?
1: Yeah, and and, and, and so then secondly,
0: there's some questions about doubt. So I'll, I'll leave that for okay. the second part. Okay. You kind of started so getting very into both of those right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Practically, I think we need to be students of culture. Um, I think Paul modeled this in his encounter with the Greeks in Mars Hill. Um, he went out and looked carefully at the objects of their worship And he was a student of the culture. He sought to reach for the gospel, and I think we need to be like we need to do likewise. So, what that what does that mean for me personally? Practically, Um, I'm actually at my desk, so I'm going to pull this out. I'll show you. All right, I have my reading log right here. This is my reading log where uh, I keep track of every book that I've read. um, And every year, I read about 50 books. And uh, (laughs) but what I do is I always read in three, three or four categories because. As a philosopher, I I certainly have to read in philosophy and theology and apologetics, and I do. But I'm also reading in fiction and nonfiction, uh, and I'm reading off the New York Times bestseller list um, for two reasons. Number one, they're usually good books, which is so they're enjoyable, they're pleasurable. But number two, it also gives me a read on what People in culture are currently wrestling with. And so I found that, and I've been doing this for years, Mm. um, I've found that to be very helpful in understanding culture. And of course, there's now you can add to that Netflix and videos and stuff, but you want to be careful there, right? Uh, You can, you can, that's a little more passive as well. So you've got to be kind of a student of it. So intentionally looking. Which I do very practically all the time, and I'm trying to make connections between um, the things that I read and the gospel, and culture, and the state of of the gospel. Um, Oh, and then the second part of that question was so that was just one example. The second was how do you not fall into, you know, things that you shouldn't, and so on. Yeah, you've got to be careful. Um, I don't consume everything. So just to give one example, um, there are certain. TV shows I know I would love because it's the the kind of genre that I love, but I also know that they're highly pornographic. And so, or, you know, basically highly pornographic or suggestive of. We we won't name names, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Just that, that. And so, exercising Christian wisdom, I've, for example, chosen not to watch certain series that I know I would enjoy. And I do that because I'm, I'm trying to exercise Christian wisdom um, to lean in the direction of the kind of person I want to be. So, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the same for everyone, right? And and there could be times where um, those things would be helpful to watch for various reasons. But that's just what it is. we, we just got to um, to apply that, that Christian wisdom uh, such that we are, um, yeah, paying attention to the state of our heart, state of our soul, state of our character, uh, and not being
0: overtaken by the things that we consume good that's i think that's uh, that's really good advice for people to people to think through um last question for the middle section has to deal with doubt so i'll just ask this one um the person asks why and how does a christian deal or respond to the doubts and unbelief of their own minds and spirit uh, interesting question i was ju- literally before we came on here i was just having a conversation with somebody who's wrestling with doubt and just isn't quite there in terms of surrendering their life to Christ. And and doubt was a big part of that conversation. How do you mm-hmm. deal with it? Where do I take my doubts? What do I do with that? So what, what advice would you give us?
1: I would say, good. Um, I mean, don't... Um, I, I think doubts are okay. Um, in fact, doubts... You know, we all have doubts. I have doubts. Uh, my kids have doubts. And, and so, so what I would want to say is that we lean into our doubts. We don't allow our doubts to have authority in our life such that we just stop there right but we lean into them so that we can seek truth on the other side of those doubts and so like one of my good friends Travis Dickinson just wrote a book called wandering toward God in doubt or something I Travis, if you're listening, I think I got the, the title a little off. But it's about wandering toward God in our doubts. And he makes this point that we we lean into them. And this is what's so interesting is even think about like the disciples um, right in at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, right before the Great Commission, where Jesus is, you know, to say his famous last words, the really important words about going and making disciples of all nations and things like that. But right before that, I think it's verse 11, it says, The disciples were there with him, but some of them vacillated. That's the the word for doubt. Some of them doubted. So what's interesting there is you have disciples who doubt, but yet they were worshiping. And I think that's the great posture, right? Is that we don't we don't um, ignore our doubts, but we lean into them because I think faithfully followed, what we will do is actually have a stronger faith on the other end of that, right? And so if ultimately we're about seeking truth. Um, Now, I'm convinced that Christianity is the truth, but that doesn't mean I have doubts. Um, But it also means that in my doubts, there's not, for me personally, there's no anxiety about that. But for others, there will be anxiety. And so, just don't let your doubts have the last word. It's kind of a way station. You've got to press through them. Um, And even like Tim Keller would say, sometimes we need to doubt our doubts, right? Sometimes Mm. the doubts Mm. are, are from like cultural Sort of mindsets that might not be super helpful. Um, so everything
0: is fair game, and that's what it just means to be someone who yeah. pursues truth. Yeah. Always great words from the uh, from the from the the sage who has left us. But uh, yeah. Anyway, yep. Yep. thanks yep. thanks so much for that, Paul. That was that was really really good. Do you mind if we pivot and talk a little bit about AI before our uh, yeah, yeah. Before our time? Okay. So yep. um, so we just did a whole. Session on artificial intelligence and the guy who uh, came and spoke. He, he talked a little bit about like what AI can do and people have different views of what it is. I think the, one of the topics we weren't able to get super deep into, uh, just for the sake of time and and, and whatnot, is um, uh, how is AI changing our view of humanity and and the big metaphysical question i believe <laughs> is what does yeah. it mean to be a human being and is ai changing our view of that or do we run the danger of it doing that um what would you say from a philosophical perspective and help us think think that through a little bit as we interact with uh, this technology
1: yeah that's good and, and i'll i'll just say that this is an area that i want to do and there's others that are doing really good thinking but um and and so i'll just point point to them for yeah name I mean, them. there's Let a lot us know. going know
0: give us some resources yeah there's a,
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on there. But here's I I would want to say, you know, to the question, has does AI change our conception of what it means to be a human person? And I would want to say, like, on the one hand, no, on the other hand, yes. So let Mm -hmm. me try to let me try to cash that out, because in in doing that, I think I'll say everything that I probably want to say about this at the moment. Uh, I mean, I say more, but the most important things I want to say. So does it change your conception of um, human nature? Well, on the one hand, no. And let me let me explain that. So there's this kind of dominant social imaginary, this dominant way of conceiving the world, right? Today, and and, and that if you wanted to kind of summarize it in three philosophical words or three words, it would be mechanism.
0: Well, can I, can I ask you and, one thing? Sorry, uh, just yeah. social imaginary. Could you give us a quick oh, definition yes. so we know what that is? Sorry. That sounds like a Charles Taylor word to me. It is. I shouldn't have even (laughs) said it.
1: uh, Is all I'm trying to get at is there's like this dominant way of conceiving or imagining the world we find ourselves in, right? So we we talked early on about metaphysics, right? So everyone kind of has this this default metaphysic or default way of understanding reality. Does that help? Is that okay? It does. Yes. Thank you. That's very good. That's all that social imaginary stuff. Just to get people a framework, you know. Yeah, that's good. So that default, um, Way of conceiving reality, uh, I think, can be best understood in terms of three words: mechanism, uh, reductionism, and materialism. Right. So, so the world is a giant mechanism, kind of like a clock. This is from Galileo on. We've been this is just the common mm-hmm. conception of the world. Everything's material, and usually the little bits of matter, whatever those fundamental physics is, that's the basic stuff. And actually, that's the reductionism, right? We're nothing but little bits of matter. So you'll hear yep. people like Sean Carroll say, you're nothing but organized mud. He actually yes, says yes. that in his book, The Big Picture. Yes. So this is the common, common like air we breathe. So then we have this question about AI. Does it change our view of human nature? No, because I'm of the opinion as a philosopher who deals in metaphysics that that this idea of what's called art Artificial general intelligence, or that that um, right. machines can actually become conscience, or to even put it a step further, that they can become conscious persons—that's sometimes called superintelligence. Yeah, right. This is actually metaphysically impossible, and I think for at least two reasons. And I'll just—I'm going to do this really quick. Uh, the first reason is because of the nature of our our mental states, the nature of consciousness itself. And 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 for example, um, oftentimes in the literature, people will point out that our conscious states our mental life is a a deep unity, right? It's the kind of thing that's, it's a unified conscious awareness or our mental states are deep unified things that can't be reduced to their parts, right? Whatever the micro parts of the brain are or things like that. But for AI, our conscious states, if, if we were to get machines that think, those conscious states would be reducible to their parts, right? The algorithm plus the computer that embodies the algorithm. And that's just not something that's, that's metaphysically possible, right? Machines just can't think. At least this is the the pretty, uh, this is the conviction I hold. Even beyond that, though, what about, so then conscious, but then there's, so a person is someone with some being with an intellect and a will, right? So what about the will? Well, we tend to think of persons as creatures that are able to be centers of causal powers, right? That we that our actions yeah. are in some sense up to us, right? That they're fundamentally up to us in a way that we're not dependent on our micro parts, right? Um, so, we have a genuine free will that's not determined by the laws of nature, and it's not determined by the micro parts that compose us or things like that. So, in that sense, computers, which are just ordered aggregates of parts, will never be able to exercise genuine free freedom of the will, and so they're they're not going to ever become persons. So, does it change our view of human persons? No, on one hand, and again, I would have to flesh that out. But no, it, it, all it does is I think show the the incredible dignity and value of mm-hmm. rational creatures like ourselves, right? If a person is, as Boethius said, an individual substance of a rational nature, it just shows how infinitely value valuable reason is, and and and, and, and the will. yeah. But let me switch over to the other hand, and this will be the little caveat, like what are the worries with it? On the other hand, it does change our conception of the world um, in two ways, right? Remember that mechanism, that reductionism, and that materialism. I think that that more practically speaking, given that sort of dominant way of viewing the world, I, w- I worry about two, two problems with AI. Number one, I think that um, it's going to give us and it's already begun to do this a kind of false reenchantment. Um think of like the post-humanist movement mm-hmm. or the transhumanist mm-hmm. movement, right? This hope of eternal life on man's term, right, terms, right? So there's this real um hope that someday we can trans we can um, transplant our consciousness into a machine and then ultimately download it to some avatar and live forever, right? And so there's a kind of longing for something beyond the mundane, but we're locating the, the thing beyond the mundane in some future technology that we don't yet have, and I would argue we never will have. And so it's a kind of false reenchantment um, and a hope for eternal life on man's own terms that's, that's just going to be defective. The second thing is I worry that it also will lead to significant spiritual de- deformation, and I'm speaking here for Christians as well as non-Christians, um, and a kind of idolatry. So, for just for example, I was just reading today, actually, there's a podcast by um, – I had to write down his name. Anthony uh, Lewandowski who was an, uh, a former engineer at Google but he uh, in 2015 he, he founded the church of called the way of the future w o t f the way of the future and then he re- recently rebooted it like 2 weeks ago um and I was he was just on a podcast about this and it was so interesting what he says on the podcast I, w- I want to read you a quote so basically um the church the way of the future is this church that's seeking to um which he says has a couple thousand followers, is seeking to try to build a spiritual uh, connection between humans and AI. And so, here's a quote from the podcast. He says, Here we are actively creating things that can see everything, be everywhere, and know everything, and maybe help us and guide us in the way that normally you would call God. Right? And so, there is this worry that we are being spiritually deformed, Um, by AI, and at some point, we'll, we will begin to treat it as a kind of God surrogate. And mm. in fact, we're already seeing that in mm. the secular world, given that dominant way of viewing the world, we're already seeing that kind of God substitute take place with things like the Church of AI. So yeah, those are some of the dangers, mm. um, and, and also how I don't think it, it changes
0: how we view human nature. Wow. Well, you just said a lot right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know I kind of loaded a little bit. So there you go. You got you got me thinking. Well, uh, let me just try to wrap my mind around that. You you, you made me go in a, a bunch of different places. That that was that was super deep. Um, let me let me just give you a practical thing. I think though, because uh, what I was thinking, and you were you were getting at this at the end, is that yes, I don't think it's going to change our view of humanity, but maybe at a surface level, people think it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that, I was having a conversation with somebody after a church service a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was after we had done our AI, our AI uh, underground. And he's a student at a local college and he was talking about quantum computing. And I think he's, he's in that field and basically almost in his line of uh, discussion was assuming that at some point he, robots are going to be able to think like humans. And yes. so I think, I think his point at the end was, well, what do we do about rights and things like that? Um, mm mm-hmm. So that made me think, oh, wow, that's that's interesting that people are just like kind of assuming or thinking that. Um, and I don't think they're thinking like you, like I'm tracking like you, but I think people maybe out in the general popular culture um, oh, yeah, are not. Totally. Um, the other thing that we did talk about a lot was this idea of human agency and seeding that agency over to machines in the sense that, well, ChatGPT, okay, can uh, can gather a lot of information for me, but how much of that now am I... Am I ever gonna be giving over decisions to 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 a machine or to an algorithm? And I always mm-hmm. come back the illustration I always come back to uh, the movie that was ahead of its time was that movie Wally where um, you know people are sitting on their uh, their uh, their chairs fat out of shape drinking soft drinks and the machines are doing everything and they, they do it all they're giving all that away for for pleasure um, and that was like 2008 I think when that came out and I thought this is kind of weird, but the way things have progressed in the 15 years since then, it, it, it does, it makes a lot of sense that people might buy into that, you know, giving over what I'm doing, uh, because it's, it's easier. Um, and then the third thing you were talking about, about the, the whole idea of taking your conscience and embedding that into a computer and and this idea of this false eternality, uh, I think is, is going to be a topic that we'll have to, we'll have to be yeah. be equipped to talk about in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you, th- do you think, does any of that, am I missing the mark on what you just said? I feel like I was trying no, to tell no. something. <laughs> yeah, not
1: at all. I would, I would point your listeners. So um, there's this guy named, uh, his name's William McCaskill and he's a futurist. So, you know, one of the areas that I think this goes back to one of your earlier questions, what are the areas that apologists and Christian philosophers in this case and theologians should be thinking about? Well, there's this whole sort of domain, of thought, and it's also connected to the business world and to Silicon Valley. It's called futurism. And so William McGaskill is like one of the youngest philosophers in Oxford University, but he's got like the ear of all of Silicon Valley, including Musk, Elon Musk. And he wrote a book called "What We Owe the Future," and it's a really great book. And we read it in one of my classes because it was a we were it was a class on public philosophy, and I wanted to ha- uh, read instances of public philosophy. And this is a book written by a philosopher to the public, and he's wrestling with this question: What do we owe future humans? And he went through um, threats to our extinction, and of course, there's like the environmental threat, but one of the other big ones is the the threat um, of human extinction through. Uh, the rise of artificial intelligence. And so there's a whole section on there where people are wrestling with that. And one of the interesting things from that, uh, because you alluded to this earlier as well, was you're right, there's a, a, I forget what the percentage was, but there's a high percentage of uh, people that work in this field, not philosophers as much as- Programmers. um, Computer scientists and programmers who think that, uh, that computers will become conscious. But even a higher percentage think that, and this was the scary part, that when that happens, or even before that happens, um, AI will cause the destruction of humanity, right? So there's some very, and it could just be that the computer runs amok and, I don't know, sets off lots of bad pathogens and bombs and things like that. I don't know exactly all the details of how that could happen. I don't think it's like Terminator 3 or anything. But, But yeah, so people are wrestling with these questions. And I think that Christians need to be involved, or at least aware of these discussions, because... Culture is changing at such a rapid pace, and we tend to be reactionary, and so we've got to get out in front. And so that was part of what I was doing in reading that. And so I'm glad to hear that you're having these conversations about AI, and that there are people that are theologians and philosophers that are starting to think about this, but we've got to be uh, really diligent and
0: vigilant in these areas. That's good. Well, maybe at at the end here, uh, uh, just to wrap it up, I was thinking, could you give us... Uh, some suggestions on as we're dealing with like a technology like that what are some good like ethical philosophical questions that we should always be be asking ourselves as we're interacting with uh, I guess with technology in general but maybe AI in particular
1: yeah Um, I mean in one sense uh, you know AI is just another tool right just Mm -hmm. it's a little more sophisticated than the screwdriver in my toolbox. Right. So, I mean, there are use, and I I acknowledge that there are uses that are beneficial and there will be beneficial uses to it. But on the other hand, I think we need to be careful about how it's shaping us. Remember we said earlier that, that we, we make culture. So AI is culture, Mm -hmm. but it in turn shapes us. And so I always go back to the iPhone. Um, You know, we love the iPhone. I've got, it's right over here on my ledge, on my window. And, um, as much as we created something pretty amazing with the iPhone, it has shaped us. And and you all know, you know this because whenever we go to a restaurant now, I see a group of teenagers and they're all staring at their phones instead of talking to each other. And I'd struggle with this too, and everyone else does, right? We lift up our phone hundreds of times every day. And so we've got to be vigilant with AI. It's no different except that I think that the power to spiritually deform us um, increases because now we've got these really sophisticated algorithms that know how to say all the right things that start to sound a lot like a person. And it starts to create the same chemicals that we and dopamine releases that we have when we pray and when we experience yeah. an encounter with God. And so now there's some really scary things that this technology can do. Um, so we just have to be really careful, really vigilant. And I would just say, Asking the question daily. So just to go back, last thing I'll say, go back to something that John Calvin said. You know, he said uh and Tim Keller pointed this out to us that our hearts are idol factories. Mm-hmm. And so daily yes. we need to remind ourselves of our need for the gospel and our need for the cross. And I would just say AI is no different in that sense, that daily we need to be driven back to the cross and realize that our hearts
0: are yeah. always generating these idols and just be return to Christ moment yeah. by moment as Well, that time. is that is a good place. Uh, to end. although I will say, uh, just as maybe as an anecdote, uh, a couple summers ago, I was able to take a couple months sabbatical. And during mm. that time, uh, I don't know how you feel, but every time, I don't feel like I really unplug unless I, I put my phone down and turn my email off. <clears throat> and for a few months, I was able to do that. And I, I noticed how different I was. Right. I'm not reaching for the phone every five seconds because I need to see an email or see if somebody to me or, or check out whatever. Um, So, there is, you're right, there is a formation piece that comes in there that once it becomes so ubiquitous, we don't even notice it until we unplug ourselves from it. So, uh, that's a good word, Paul. Thank you so much. And uh, lots of insights. Uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed uh, this podcast. Uh, Paul, maybe our paths will cross again soon. But thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Blessings to you and All all your listeners. Thank you. All right. And God bless. We hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast.